Hello and welcome to Bob Dylan, American Shakespeare, brought to you in conjunction with Crystal Pier Records by me, Rich Evans. And me, Mark Walsh. This is the podcast where we listen back to each of Bob Dylan's officially released albums in order. And then after a couple of weeks, we get together to reassess them and see what we think of them in retrospect. This time we're up to episode eight, which is John Wesley Harding released in December 1967. But we are recording this in July 2021, and it was a very exciting week for Bob Dylan fans. This week just gone, Rich, wasn't it? It was indeed, because this was the uh, the release of Shadow Kingdom, and you actually watched it live, didn't you? I watched it subsequently. I was too busy uh, being disappointed for uh, Mark Cavendish's failure to win on the uh, Champs-Élysées at the time. I was mourning. You watched it. I watched it a few days later. I loved it. What did you think, Mark? Yeah, I mean, everybody was so excited. There was a little chat bar with everyone counting down. Of course, Twitter was in meltdown, as you'd expect. And then when it started, it was just so beautifully shot. Everything about it was pitch perfect, really. I just could have done with a bit more of it. Yes, indeed. I mean, I thought that the, the production values are absolutely outstanding. I just thought that they were wonderful. It made me yearn to be in that kind of environment once again. I mean, the musicianship, as you'd expect, was absolutely world class. And <laughs> yeah, I loved it. And I thought his voice was wonderful as well. I wouldn't say it's a revelation, but it was certainly uh, very gratifying for all of those of us who've been saying, he can sing, he can sing for, for years and years. <laughs> <laughs> what about... Um, I mean, we won't spend too long on this one, but what what kind? What were your highlights, Mark, uh, of the performance? Well, I think actually my highlight was his voice, as you say. It was tremendous, and I I haven't seen him live for a good fifteen years. So he obviously went through that bit of a trough where his voice really did go off, and it's 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 picked up a little bit over the the American Songbook period, and of course on rough and rowdy ways. It was it was a delight. So lovely to hear him singing so strongly. I really did love, what did I love? (laughs) (laughs) I loved uh, What Was It You Wanted, which was absolutely tremendous. I'm not quite sure whether it was just that I didn't have any expectation that that song would be such a highlight. So I was just so bowled over by the performance, like a lot of people. And funny that he, he, he picked a song from 1989 as one of his early songs, but that's another story. How about you, Rich? I absolutely loved Queen Jane. I just thought it was wonderful. Just the the, the arrangement, everything about it. I mean, I, I it was interesting that it, it worked very, very well as a live stream. I think it was just because it was so atmospheric. I mean, I would imagine the last time that people took that much relish in smoking was probably on the set of Mad Men or something like that. I mean, I've, I must admit for the rest of the day, I was kind of craving nicotine in a way that I haven't done for years and years and years. But it was... I mean, it's like a perfect antidote, really, to, to lockdown. Obviously, this podcast is called Bob Dylan, American Shakespeare. And the idea of the, um, the title of the, the performance, I mean, it arguably, potentially a reference to Puck in um, Midsummer Night's Dream, calling Oberon the King of Shadows. Obviously, they're the kind of supernatural creatures, the, the fairies that are very kind of mischievous and play tricks on people. And how unlike Bob Dylan that would be, I think, uh, to, to pick such a title <laughs> and, then, and then make it entirely misleading. <laughs> but there we go. Yeah, I loved it. I mean, I can't say much more than that. What about you, Mark? Anything else? No, no. I think people, um, people who are interested, and I'm sure any who stumbled across this podcast certainly will be will have their own views won't they but if i can do one of our super smooth professional segues of course one of the other highlights on the performance was wicked messenger which just so happens to be one of the songs on john wesley harding which i believe we are here to talk about today indeed that was a very smooth link uh, i must say i like the, the the version of wicked messenger i mean it's all, all but uh, unrecognizable from the the version of course that we've been listening to for the last couple of weeks on the album Getting back on the subject in hand then, uh, which is, of course, John Wesley Harding. I mean, we normally start off by by talking about how familiar with this record we were beforehand in the past. What's your relationship with uh, John Wesley Harding, the album rather than the person, Mark? <laughs> yeah, uh, well, I, I think this was one of the first albums of Bob Dylan's that I came to without huge preconceptions. So obviously we've just come out of a period where, you know, we've really got the canon, haven't we, of the three, the three classic mid-60s electric albums, which as soon as you become aware of the history of rock music, I suppose, those are albums which immediately stand out, aren't they? And you're going to come to them with preconceptions, uh, whether you like it or not. This one, I would probably have, have heard about it as the, the comeback album. 
and the shift in style, I would have been aware that that was something that was coming. But other than that, very few preconceptions. Definitely Jimmy's version of All Along the Watchtower was something I would have been aware of before hearing the record. So that was kind of a way into it, I suppose. But yeah, nothing, nothing else. And I enjoyed it as a as, a, as an album with lots and lots of very pretty arrangements. And I remember being really taken by the ballad of Frankie Lee and Judas Priest and this kind of crazy shaggy dog story. As an adolescent, I spent far too long trying to figure out what the meaning of that song was and, you know, not grasping at all the whole point of it was that there, there isn't a, a meaning you can grasp in your hand. And so that was where I started with it. But I, I do think this is the one out of all his records that has grown on me over the years in the sense that it does keep unfolding new meanings and having new avenues to explore new facets to appreciate. So in that way, I think it's probably the richest album uh, for me in the sense that I've just kept finding more and more in it as I've gone through life myself. How about you, Rich? Well, I thought that I knew this album, you know, I I thought that I'd heard it and evidently I hadn't listened to it very much at all. I mean, I don't think there was ever any doubt for anyone that's listening out there that I was any kind of non-expert or or lacking in in, in knowledge about Bob Dylan. But I mean, this probably confirms it entirely because I felt like I was approaching this almost for the first time. I was very well aware of the Hendrix version of uh, All Along the Watchtower. But I think looking back on it, I had, as an adolescent, certainly, I'd love the hat trick really of the the three great mid-60s records that you've just uh, made reference to and I guess maybe I thought that once he'd had the motorcycle crash that was kind of it and I I sort of hadn't got the same level of interest for whatever reason that I then subsequently picked up on albums uh, later albums here and there but I I don't know maybe I likened him almost to the great Ajax team that won three (laughs) European cups on the bounce in the sort of their very early 70s and then it's like you, you do these three incredible things and where do you go from there so I I've loved this I mean I've I've felt like almost like I was listening to a new a new album really and yeah what's this kind of story uh, behind the recording of it then Mark have you got any background you'd like to give so yeah I guess we need to look back a little bit because of course in this podcast we're skipping over for now a not insignificant event in Bob Dylan's recording career. So, of course, the story is very well known. After Blonde on Blonde, he went on the world tour. He came back and had a whole bunch of other concerts lined up by his manager, Albert Grossman. But then he had his motorcycle accidents and was out of commission, convalescing, holed up in Woodstock with his family. And then throughout 1967, he was recording with the Hawks, who became the band. And of course, we now know that he was really digging into, I guess, what we'd now call Americana with them and creating all these astonishing songs that have surfaced in the decades since. But I guess to your your average punter back then, he was completely out of sight and he resurfaced with this album in December 1967. So it was a real event, having been away and having really been at his peak, as we said last time, really dominating the rock scene in the middle of 1966. All of a sudden, he's completely invisible. Meanwhile, we get these tremendous events, the Summer of Love, Sergeant Pepper, this blossoming of psychedelia. And then he returns, but he returns not just with a, an album that isn't Blonde on Blonde version two. It's also not really a response to that kind of psychedelic summer of love. It's something entirely different. And it wasn't even a set of songs that he'd been working on in the basement. They were songs that he'd written specifically for this purpose. The whole thing was written and recorded, as far as we know, within a matter of weeks. And it came out at the end of the year. Yeah, that's right. And it's such an incredible kind of step back, really, from Blonde on Blonde. I mean, it's obviously Bob Dylan, right throughout his career, has wrong-footed his audience. He's taken what might have been considered strange steps and strange turns, and yet this was a big hit. I mean, this was a number two on the Billboard charts and it's completely, as you say, flies in the face of what was happening at the time. I mean, there's obviously been a lot of speculation about the about the motorcycle crash. How bad was it? I mean, I don't think we need to really get into that in terms of the fact that there's supposed disagreements about the reporting of it and his time in hospital, etc., etc. But I think what's interesting, and I'm going to make a, a spurious kind of Shakespearean link here, is this sense of mystery surrounding it. It's like almost like uh, Bob Dylan's kind of missing time. Uh, it's not quite Shakespeare, the missing years, but obviously there are, if we go back to the immortal bard for a moment, there are these years which no one actually has any real clue 
what happened. Um, and I think that that adds to the allure. It adds to the mystique. I mean, you've got in Shakespeare's lifetime, him leaving grammar school until he got married to Anne Hathaway. And then you've got the the period when most kind of Shakespearean scholars think he was probably learning his trade, learning his craft. But it just adds to this kind of sense of mystery. And I think that's kind of what we've got there with Bob Dylan. I mean, and we're never going to get an answer on this. I mean, there's, there's some people that say he was kicking drugs. There was some, there's some people that just say it was complete burnout. There's some people that say that the accident was kind of fictitious. Uh, whatever it is, it just, there's so many questions. I think that that makes the whole thing even more interesting and then to come out with something so kind of different to what he's been doing i mean it's 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 remarkable that's a, i know we've used that word many many times on, on this podcast but it's just remarkable this kind of capacity i suppose for for reinvention really Absolutely. And I think you do get a sense of, of what it must have been like at the time from the commercial success of the, the album, because as you say, it was, a, it was a massive hit. There was a real appetite to see what he was going to be coming out with now. You know, it was almost, it was almost like the second coming in a way, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> he, was, he was returning back out of the wilderness. And, and yeah, I think you're right. You, you've obviously got this, this real step change from what he'd been doing with Blonde on Blonde. And as I said before, it's also almost a step change from what we now know he'd been doing in the basement, which again is, is really interesting. But perhaps we'll save that conversation for, um, for a few weeks' time. But, but thinking about it from a point of view of his fan base at the time, who would have been primed for a for a, a follow-up to Blonde on Blonde. I think it's really interesting to, to try and pick out the continuities and the discontinuities between the two records, because clearly they're very, very different. Blonde on Blonde is this uh, full, electric, very psychedelic-tinged double album. And now you've got this much, much sparser record. It's sparser in the musical arrangements. It's sparser in the lyrical stylings. And it's sparser in the structure of the songs, isn't it? I think uh, I worked out that out of the 12 songs, 10 of them are simply three verses. And that's your lot. So something that would have been totally unexpected, I suppose, in a complete revolution to the, the person expecting another blonde on blonde. But at the same time, there are these kind of links, aren't there? So he did record John Wesley Harding in Nashville. Uh, he traveled down from Woodstock for that purpose. A couple of the musicians, well, the only two musicians that play on it for the most part, apart from Bob Dylan, were also playing on blonde on blonde. And I, I, I thought... If we're picking out spurious links, I did think that it's interesting that probably the most famous lyric on this album is the opening to uh, All Along the Watchtower. There must be some way out of here. And that, to me, puts us back in that kind of weird entrapment of blonde on blonde and that kind of hankering for escape. It's in a very different setting, but it's the same kind of feeling that's still lurking in the background there. Yeah, wow. There's a there's a lot to respond to there. That's a that's a philosophical and uh, <laughs> goodness knows what else kind of approach. I think it's interesting this idea of it being a reaction to Blonde on Blonde and this reaction to the excesses, as you say, because one of the things that we talked about last time on the Blonde on Blonde podcast was this idea of the massive amounts of ambiguity that surround all of the songs. And I think you've still got that. You've still got that um, on, on these songs. I mean, there's massive amounts of ambiguity. It's just that we're not getting this kind of bombardment of imagery uh, in the same way. Uh, it's not kind of like the, the kind of machine gun throwing loads and loads of pictures at you. It's kind of a little bit more studied. It's a bit more, it's just a bit slower, I suppose. And I, I mean, I guess arguably that probably reflects the pace of life, maybe. The fact that he's writing in Woodstock, the fact that he's hanging out with the band. And I think, yeah, this idea, there must be some kind of way out of here or must be some way out of here. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it it, it works, doesn't it? It works as a, as, as a link, really, to, to, to what's gone before. But it's just such, it's so amazing to me how much he's kind of gone against the expectations that, that, that people would have had at the time. I mean, it would have been the easiest thing. I mean, not the easiest thing, but it would have been easy for him to just kind of plough that same sort of furrow. But of course, he, we, we talked about how he didn't do this in terms of after the times they were changing. He didn't follow up with something similar to that when it would have been very easy for him to do. And so I suppose it shouldn't probably be quite as surprising as it is, as it is in this instance. Well, that's the amazing thing about Bob Dylan, isn't it? He'd astonished people by doing, well, I suppose you could start by saying he'd astonished people by turning out to be the genius he was 
on freewheeling and times of are changing. They need disappointed people with another side, as you say. Then we've got the whole electric period. And now we've got this. And we're only really getting started, aren't we? <laughs> we've got the, uh, the Christian period coming up. We've got his, his early 90s Faragos. And then even the thing, about it, <laughs> the thing about it, though, is even knowing all of that, I was still a bit disappointed when he, he put out those three records on the American Songbook. And I was like, oh, no. That's not what we want you to do, Bob. Even with all that history, he's still doing it now, isn't he? And, and who knows what his next album's going to be like, if indeed we ever get one. So yes, absolutely. It, it is something that's possibly unique to him, but something that, he, that is a constant throughout his, his career. But yeah, going back to what you were saying, Rich, this album really was swimming against the, the tide of, of 1967, wasn't it? I know you've got some, some thoughts about how even the cover might, might suggest that. Yeah, I, I mean, I do wonder it's very it's very tempting sometimes to kind of almost think that he had a crystal ball that he was looking into and that he was able to read these trends and changes and i'm sure he would be the first person to disagree with that a lot of the changes that happened he either read or they kind of happened almost like as indirect knock-on effects but I wonder if he kind of smelt a rat with some aspects of the 60s dream, as it were, already even at this early stage, because this is not a psychedelic record, which of course was happening at the time. This is a, this kind of, it was a bit of a harbinger really for the, for the singer-songwriter movement and this kind of back to basics thing that took place subsequently. But I, uh, yeah, I wonder if, if there's a sense of sort of disillusion. I mean, I think there certainly is a sense of disillusionment with society, disillusionment with the the way that things are going. I mean, going back to the cover, though, as you, as you say, the, there are, there's all these people that have said, oh, it's, it's a reaction against the Beatles or it's supposed to be kind of symbolic. I mean, essentially, from my understanding, the guys that are featured on the cover with him are just a few almost itinerant musicians that Albert Grossman happened to be working with. And he shoved them on the, on the cover. I wonder... And I think that there is a, there's people that are far better informed than me that have said this, whether on the cover of Sergeant Pepper, you've got the Beatles there surrounded by all and sundry, all the shakers and movers of kind of popular culture. And Bob Dylan is just sat there against the tree with some, some people that arguably are fairly insignificant in the big scheme of things. And I think that there is, it's playful, but there's definitely a, there's definitely a sense of, do you know what, I reject this. Yeah, and of course, supposedly he's got the Beatles with him, hasn't he? In the the uh, the trunks of the trees behind the faces of the Beatles. My favourite thing about that is, uh, I think it was a letter to Melody Maker that uh, Robert Shelton quotes in his book. Somebody wrote in and said, "If you uh, hold the record the right way up and turn it clockwise, the record falls out." But yeah, I think right, and it's 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 things like that I think that sort of point towards where music was going and I suppose rock music particularly, all these sorts of things. Nobody was talking about this sort of stuff on the cover of uh, the freewheeling Bob Dylan. Even when the music was as, was as deep and rich as it was, you didn't get these kind of cranks and superfans layering every little thing with meaning. And what had happened since was bands like the Beatles had been very self-referential, and this mythology was building up, wasn't it? This self-mythologization of, uh, of rock which wasn't always a positive thing, as we, as we know. Um, you know, some, some very unpleasant things came of that. But I think we're starting to see that now, and we're starting to see the, the impact of, um, well, I guess what you'd, you'd now call Dylanology um, in this period. That's absolutely right. And, I mean, in, in many respects, he'd kind of shown how it was possible to mould together music and really, really good, interesting poetry. Now, he wasn't the first person to do that. But he was one of the, the leading lights in being able to marry that with the protest movement. I mean, I know that people like Joe Hill had done that before, but he did it to, to such a, an alarming extent. I think it had a huge impact. And then, of course, marrying poetry, essentially, to rock music. Well, that was something else. I mean, if we think about this, there's obviously this is a folk record, but this is a country record in many respects. But it's got lyrics which are arguably rock and roll lyrics at times. I mean, we can get into the lyrical content of this, but people always talk about how Graham Parsons, for instance, invented kind of cosmic Americana and this idea of molding together rock and, uh, and, and, and country, really. And I think, arguably, Bob Dylan's doing it here, isn't he? He's really doing this as well a good two or three years before 
Graham Parsons has kind of started really doing this in any kind of meaningful way. So once again, kind of preempting almost a a change in trend. Yeah. And I think you see those, those records like Sweetheart of the Rodeo that were coming a little bit later that really launch country rock. But what you've got here, it's interesting, you, you started off by calling it a folk record, but you have got that kind of quite driving percussion in it as well, haven't you? And um, this might be a good a good time to get into the the music and the the kind of the style and the influences on this record. Because I think the thing that really jumped out to me listening to it on a loop this time was just how much it does rock. I mean, the percussion is fantastic. Um, I think it's um, Kenny Buttery again, isn't it? Who's um, who's playing on this? But that rhythm section with uh, Charlie McCoy again, it really, really works. And there's there's much more of a drive to it than on any of his other kind of more acoustic records that he'd done earlier in the sixties. I agree, and I mean the title track is a case in point. I mean you've got those that really an interesting kind of hi hat work that's that's going on with that, with with very very interesting rhythms that that really do drive and. It's. I think it's just because it is so stripped down. You don't. You almost don't think of it as, as as having that kind of drive. But it, it's really there, isn't it? I mean, I think that the arrangements are, are very. It's very telling that he stripped the arrangements down. But everything's there. Everything's got a, a, a definite purpose. And I mean, it's one of the things that he talked about with. Uh, I think he was in conversation with Alan Ginsberg actually with the words as well in a in an interview about this. And he said he wanted every line to have a purpose. And Ginsberg in particular talked about how he was restricting the lengths of his lines and, and thinking very, very carefully about meter and going from this kind of almost Walt Whitman-esque, very long lines on, on, on Blonde on Blonde to something much, much tighter. And I think, so yeah, the, the rhythm section that you mentioned absolutely kind of echoes that. Yeah, definitely. And, and it's interesting, isn't it? But just as you say, the words apart down in the same way that the arrangements are but just as the arrangements don't lose their power they've still got this this drive as you say equally the words have lost none of their their authority if anything they've, they've gained uh, in weight since blonde on blonde on these songs it, it really interesting to speculate about where all that sort of stuff comes from both the musical style and the, the lyrical content very famously he he, he supposedly had a a huge Bible open on a book stand that he would get up and consult while entertaining <laughs> in his house in Woodstock. Um, and you can hear that, certainly. I mean, whether or not that particular anecdote is true, you can certainly hear the King James Bible in, in here, can't you? But also, there's something else going on, I would say, isn't there? I, I know you wanted to talk about the, the roots back to the earlier folk music. Yes, I think that you can trace, certainly you can trace the aspects of the Harry Smith folk anthology here, particularly with the ballad form. I mean, it's interesting what he does with the ballad form because they're kind of ballads. I mean, some of these would probably work as kind of almost 18th century sort of ballads in many respects. But as always with Bob Dylan, he's, he's kind of subverting and he's kind of chopping and changing and he's leaving bits out and he's forcing us to infer and deduce things. I mean, the I think I'm right in saying that I Dreamed I Saw St. Augustine, for example, is based on the I Dreamed I Saw Joe Hill, which, of course, was sub, was based on something that had happened that, that had gone on before. I mean, Joe Hill, of course, famously the, the kind of martyr for the international workers of the world, the Swedish immigrant that was um, that was actually framed and it's kind of this has just triggered a thought that i had we've obviously got pity the poor immigrant uh, i wonder if if we could make a case that this is potentially uh, relating to joe hill who of course was shot down in i think utah i think he was executed for a, on very very trumped up spurious charges but uh, but yeah i've i've digressed hugely let's i'm, I'm going to throw it back to you mark to try and get us back on on point <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's that's a lost cause, isn't it? Relying on me to bring us back to the point. <laughs> well, interesting that you mentioned that song, because one of the things that occurred to me listening to it this time, apart from the fact that it's an absolutely gorgeous melody, uh, and a, which is lifted, isn't it, from another folk song. Gorgeous melody, beautifully delivered. Again, the usual rejoinder that we have to throw in at this point to say that anyone who says Bob Dylan can't sing needs to, to listen to this. But yeah, I did, I did start thinking about that song, actually, uh, that you can see the immigrant as being the American nation itself. Of course, America famously being a nation of of immigrants. But the way in which the narrator recounts 
the sins of the immigrant and particularly the bit about the cities built from blood and then the the end where he's talking about it's almost he's almost apprehensive and nervous for this this um, protagonist that you know what's going to happen when he actually gets what he wants and I, I i sort of thought that works quite well as a as a metaphor for the american nation and and if you go along with that then it does tie back to what you were saying about joe hill and this kind of other version of america that's that's been lost uh, which would sit in counterpoint to that Wow, that's uh, that's highbrow stuff for, uh, for for this hour of the evening. But yeah, I mean, that, I like that idea of it being. I mean, clearly, clearly, there's there's any number of kind of allegories at work. I think in 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 many many of these songs, but particularly in that case, the idea of the uh, of the nation. I mean, again, this is the kind of thing that adds fuel to the fire almost of of those people that said, well, he could he could almost see into the future because, of course, this is it's around about now, isn't it? I mean, with the Vietnam really, uh, the, the war starts escalating. I mean, again, we're, we're going down a bit of a rabbit warren here, but if you look at the, the people that were drafted, um, they were disproportionately poor, not college educated, and very, very frequently from ethnic minorities or recent uh, immigrants. Um, and so whether or not there's, there's potentially a, a, another angle to kind of look at there. But I think it's another one of these songs, certainly if we take that kind of metaphor as is kind of speaking for for an ailing nation really a sickening nation and 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 this again flies in the face of this oh it's peace it's love and uh, everyone's happy and uh, isn't it wonderful to have these kind of freedoms this this is looking at another side of things isn't it really definitely and it's interesting that you mentioned the war there because one of the things that some contemporary reviewers saw was that the war was um, lurking underneath the surface. The war and the kind of the, the building civil discontent that erupted the following year. It's funny, actually, I always think of this as a 1968 album, even though it came out in 1967. And although it's harder now, I think, for us to hear those same undercurrents in the same immediate way as someone would have done then. It's still, it's still present, certainly. That also reminds me of, of something I read years ago uh, where I think it might have been in Mojo or something. A writer was saying that the only people who are ever allowed to um, be nostalgic for the 60s are Bob Dylan and Lou Reed because they were the only ones who were never bought it in the first place. Um, <laughs> and, and this album's certainly evidence in, in support of that. But yeah, I, so I suppose, shall we, shall we get into some of the individual songs on this, uh, this album? Because you, you've mentioned St. Augustine there, and uh, I do find that as, to be one of my highlights on the record. I think that one of the things that I love about it is, is the vocal. And we've spoken already about how his singing throughout is fantastic, but it's not just that he's singing really well. It's again, that he seems to have found a complete different vocal style than he'd exhibited on any of his other performances up to now. Yes, and this is that much softer, isn't it? Which I think is, I mean, arguably this kind of paves the way to that almost crooner-like uh, approach that he takes on on Nashville Skyline, which of course we'll be discussing uh, in, the, in the near future. But I think it's it also helps to kind of mask the the fact that there is this darkness here that lurks within many of these songs. And it's not quite as, well, it's not anywhere near as, as, as acerbic as, as that kind of vocal style that he's been using on things like Ballad of a Thin Man, for example, where, where he's obviously being very, very accusatory. And so I think it almost masks some of these things that are happening because I suppose the, the argument I'd make on, on many of these songs it's this idea that you've got on Blonde on Blonde, people who are trying to dissect this and decipher it, you're given loads and loads of, of, of words, huge amounts of uh, lyrics. And so it's very much in, in what he's saying. Whereas I think because this is much more sparse, much more pared down, you're having to infer and deduce, and it's therefore in what he's kind of not saying. And I think, again, the, the add, the add to the mix this new vocal style and... Uh, and suddenly you're thinking, well, hang on, it, it kind of sounds like he's singing in a, in a fairly carefree, almost jaunty way at times. These songs kind of sound like old fashioned ballads. Maybe he's just really happy living this sort of rural kind of uh, <laughs> lifestyle. But, but it, it's definitely not that. And I think that's kind of the genius of this is that it, it's, it's hinting at something much, much kind of more malevolent, really, that's happening behind the scenes, but doing it in a really very subtle way so yeah going back to that i really like the uh, way that he sings these songs mark <laughs> <laughs> no you're absolutely right and i think that contrast between this really 
very sweet delivery in some ways and uh, the unsettling content is is part of what gives the album its its kind of air of mystery and i, I do think still and there's there's some competition particularly in the 21st century but i think still this is his most mysterious album and you've you've got as you said you've got that uh, discipline of making sure that every word counts but what that also does is it it means that the meaning is almost in between the words and and again as on blonde on blonde you're left searching for the meaning but just as you say you know it's not like you're searching through a thicket of images it's like you're um you're almost meditating on a plane and just trying to to project yourself into into a into a new face which you could never quite get to and i think the other thing that he does so often on this album is he sets you up to think that he's about to deliver something that you can really hang your hat on and say well that's what this song's about that's the heart of this album and he he then he sidesteps it and you never quite get to it one of the things he does is he actually gives you a moral to a lot of his songs but i think he does it in a very disingenuous way the morals you get aren't necessarily in keeping with the song you've just been listening to. So probably most famously is uh, Frankie Lee and, and Judas Priest, where um, the, the moral of the story is if you see a neighbour carrying something, help him with his load, <laughs> um, yeah. which doesn't, I, I would suggest, doesn't necessarily help you get to the heart of what that song might be about. No, I mean, it sounds like something that's out of a parable, doesn't it? But I mean, that that is a hugely mysterious song. And I, I agree. These songs, I think, are packaged in a way where they feel like they're leading to a conclusion. And then all of a sudden, at the last moment, it's like the rug's just ripped away. And you're thinking, well, hang on, that, that didn't really answer any of the questions that were kind of set up. And uh, I think, again, that sense of ambiguity. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very modernist kind of thing. And I'll, I'll, I'll get into this a little bit more slightly later because... Yes, on the one hand, you're taking a step back to kind of rural living. And so it seems like, oh, hang on, this, is, this isn't anything to do with kind of the modern world. But I mean, one of the things that modernist poets in particular did was they rejected kind of society. They rejected the city. And this kind of embracing of nature, which happened as a, as a kind of consequence of this, was a very modernist kind of trait. But what they tended to do, and again, this is absolute speculation i've no idea whether this is really what bob dylan is trying to do here but by doing this they were actually commenting on other stuff of course they were commenting on what was happening in in, in the world itself and and the, the, the kind of wider world and i think this is it's tempting sometimes when you look at some of those modernist poems where people have written in the sonnet form so people like edna st vincent millet would use the sonnet form and yet kind of subvert it. And because it's all tightly written like a sonnet, you're thinking, hang on, this is all very twee. It's all very lovely. It's all very pastoral, really. And it's the same with people like Robert Frost, who would write in kind of iambic pentameter, and they'd have kind of rhyme schemes. And you'd think, oh, isn't that a lovely kind of rural portrait? And in reality, it's about people being, you know, blown up in the First World War and stuff like that. And I think that that's kind of, again, a little bit of a, a crowbarred link here but it's kind of where bob dylan's going with this because you've got these very tightly structured ballad kind of form uh, lyrics and yet at the same time you've not got a conclusion you've got a very ambiguous ending and again that's a very modernist kind of thing let's pose a question and then let's not actually answer it and of course if you look down at the track listings on this Loads of them are about outsiders in society. I mean, you've got like the drifter, you've got the immigrant, you've got um, the outlaw, of course, in, in Frankie Lee and Judas uh, Priest. And, and so I think when I was looking at the track listing, I was thinking, oh, here we go. You're going to get kind of Bob Dylan's opinion about this particular figure and a nice conclusion. Mm -hmm. And then he's going to present his thoughts on this person, almost like a sort of treatise kind of thing. And then you, you end up learning virtually nothing about them. But <laughs> here we go. Absolutely. And then you wonder sometimes if the, the narrator is fully reliable. Uh, <laughs> he, he, very, he very often isn't. Yeah. And I think that certainly is one of the things that, that lends it that air of mystery. And, and the other thing is that just as Blonde on Blonde has this kind of um, unsettling feeling beneath it, we, we talked, talked last time about, you know, the, the, the love triangles and the cruelty, the nastiness, but also that kind of really wired sense of anxiety that runs through a lot of it. In the same way, I think in this album, you've got these themes of guilt, regret, remorse bubbling under 
almost all of the songs. And in a very facile way, you could say, well, this is kind of like the morning after Blonde on Blonde. And um, this is this is where the person who's travelled through that night of Blonde on Blonde has ended up in. And I, I'm certain Bob Dylan didn't have any, any such uh, simplistic scheme in mind when he was creating this work. But that's another link, I think, between the two albums, that you do get this kind of emotional core to it, which is very real, but also very unsettling. And it, and it throws you off when you're listening to these pretty songs. But yeah, a, a, a very strong theme of remorse throughout it. I mean, most obviously, again, coming back to St. Augustine, which I, I think is probably my favourite song on the album after having re-listened to it this time. And such a powerful set of three verses, the way he sets up the, uh, the image and then the, the payoff. I love the way that you can, you can see the narrator in both the saints and the crowd. And you can think of it as, um, you know, you can think of it as, as Dylan's old self being killed off by the baying mob. But of course, Dylan himself is in the mob. And when he wakes up, it's that that has so unsettled him and, and left him in that kind of really empty, regretful place that he's in. So yeah, I, I, that, I think that bubbles right the way through the record and it, it makes it cohesive, but it also makes it quite unsettling and very mysterious. Yeah, and I suppose this is still the an America that's reeling from the Kennedy assassination as well, isn't it? And so that idea of, of a shared sort of, not necessarily guilt, but a kind of... This idea of the morally, what what what's happened here? What's what's kind of gone wrong? And and the shockwaves of that would still be be being felt uh, at this point in time. I mean, yeah, I totally go along with the rest of that. Though I mean, it's a it's a lovely album to listen to, but it's a very troubling listen, isn't it? There's not this is not a comfortable listen. And I mean, it's perhaps even more shown on this song, on the version on the Rolling Thunder tour, where he duets with Joan Baez on on this one, and it, it's absolutely gorgeous. I mean, it's, it sounds beautiful, and yet it's kind of obscuring this deeply, deeply unsettling kind of lyrical content, which I always think is is. Fantastic. Fascinating. I mean, I, I love it when when songs do that and they kind of wrong foot you in that kind of style. I'm not even going to attempt Frankie Lee and Judas Priest. We had Garrett Baker on um, on Twitter who was uh, who, who tweeted to say that this was his favourite and and I love the song. But in terms of getting any kind of answers, I'll leave that to you in a minute if you want to have a stab at it. I'm aware that's probably a hospital pass again. But <laughs> but there is um, I, I really like this idea of dear landlord possibly being about Albert Grossman. And I don't know how whether whether you kind of go along with that, but I think if you listen to it with that in mind, you've got those lines, please don't put a price on my soul. I mean, obviously that's very biblical. And we've mentioned the King James Bible supposedly there on his on his kind of stand. And <laughs> love the idea of that in, a, in the corner of a room. He's kind of wandering around with a cocktail, just kind of, oh, I'll go over and read a verse or something like that. And then you've got My Dreams Are Beyond Control, which, yeah, I mean, if, if you start thinking about this, you can very, very easily make it fit this idea of him almost being shackled by this quite controlling, almost kind of like Colonel Parker uh, style figure in this kind of instance. Then please don't dismiss my case. And then, of course, at the end, uh, and if you don't underestimate me, I won't underestimate you, is another prime example of how you think you're going to almost end with this with this kind of threat, but it, it seems very vague and veiled and a bit empty, really, at the end of it. So I don't know. I mean, I, I really, really enjoyed trying to pick this one apart and uh, <laughs> failed to do so miserably, as I so often do. But what do you reckon? Is it is it about Grossman or is that too simplistic? I certainly can't think of a better explanation than that one. Um, so I'm, gonna, I'm happy to go along with it. I would just say, again, I think that's, an, that's a gorgeous song to listen to. It was the one that jumped out at me the first time I heard it years and years ago. And there's been some beautiful cover versions of that too, haven't there, over the years. But yeah, I think that interpretation probably does stack up. Although, again, as you say, you, you, the rug's pulled out from under you at the end, isn't it, when you, you get that final line? What a wonderful line it is as well. It just starts to make you question everything you've just heard. Shall we, shall we pick off another couple of songs while we're, uh, while we're on this? Yeah, um, I mean, I yeah, I was, I was going to suggest, I mean, maybe have a look at All Along the Watchtower, because there's, there's aspects of that that I think uh, probably could arguably relate to Grossman as well. I mean, it sort of starts out like a ballad, doesn't it? But then you've got this but quite a lot of, of, of Western imagery, I think, in this one, like the gunslinger leaving town, that kind of stuff. And I think it's quite interesting, again, this if you think about the, the cowboy as the kind of frontiersman, that kind of romantic image of disappearing into the sunset going on to the uh, 
you know, heading out west kind of thing. Because, of course, there must be some kind of way out of here. Yes, okay, maybe it's about the music industry. Maybe it's about his motorcycle crash. Maybe it's about life and death. But maybe it's just that desire to escape. I mean, I, I don't know. What do you, what do you reckon? got to be really honest here this has never been a song that i particularly loved obviously the most famous song on the album mainly down to the cover version and interesting isn't it that that dylan's played this so often in the same style as hendrix so he's abandoned the arrangement that he chose here i think the thing that that I, there's always so many interpretations of this song that, that have been advanced over over the years but the one that, that i really bought into this time was the idea that both both the Joker and the Thief could be Dylan. And the, the, the way in which we, we talked last time about um, on Sad-Eyed Lady, we talked about the Sad-Eyed Lady standing with her, her thief. And then around the same time as this song, I guess, he was, he was writing, Why Must I Always Be the Thief in Tears of Rage, right? So I wonder whether there's that kind of sense that, you know, there's these facets of Dylan's character. The Joker, obviously, we, we see um, we see lots of times. We'll talk about Joker Man probably this time next year. So I, I think you know certainly he's got he's got form basically. So referring to himself in both of those forms as the Joker and the Thief, and I thought that's that's quite a nice way of thinking about it. And if you do look at it in that sense, then the whole thing takes on a, a metaphysical bent, doesn't it? That actually, what is this? What is this here that we're trying to get out of? It's really existence, isn't it? And those many others among us are the other the other facets of Dylan's character, the other um, the other skins he might be shedding or assuming the mood takes him. So I, I enjoyed that this time, but I don't know why, for some reason, this song's never really grabbed me. And I know that's heretical, but there it is. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the idea of the thief because I think you could see this on... You could read this fairly literally. I mean, the whole thing... Businessmen, they drink my wine. I mean, that could be, is that Dylan looking at himself almost being the kind of sacrificial lamb kind of thing? And I, I mean, we go back to the, the idea of the Shakespearean links, however spurious they may be. But I mean, Shakespeare, of course, famously described as being an upstart crow made rich with our feathers. He wrote very few um, wholly original plays. They were normally thieved, pilfered, borrowed and and then adapted and uh, i mean arguably bob dylan here is, is kind of showing him if, if indeed he is the thief he's kind of portraying himself in that kind of same vein i suppose he's the thief but then again he's he, we, we talked also about how he is quite chaplin-esque really wasn't he certainly in those early kind of folk club days so the idea of the joker as well yeah i really like this but i like the hendrix version a lot more we talked about the the, the kind of driving rhythm that 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 underpins many of these songs but it really gets kicked into overdrive doesn't it with the with the hendrix version so yeah what other songs kind of leapt out at you then mark well i guess as i say you know the highlights uh this time around were saint augustine and historically i've always loved dear landlord frankly and judas priest i guess the one thing i, I wanted to talk about a little bit was what you make of the last two songs on on the album. I've always had a kind of take it or leave it attitude to them really. But I wonder, the thing that's always said about them is that, you know, we've gone through these these 10 very intense, very mysterious, very remorseful songs. And then we arrive at these last two songs, which are saying, okay, well, all that is behind me now um, and we're moving on. And, and in retrospect, we're moving on to Nashville Skyline and everything's going to be, uh, be hunky-dory. I don't think I buy that in the sense that I don't think he was consciously saying, this is where I'm going on my next record. because just from the way he works, I don't think he himself would have known where he was going on his next record at this point. But there's no doubt they are extremely incongruous in the context of what we've had before. Do you have any thoughts on those, Rich? Yeah, I agree. They are totally incongruous. I mean, you've got the the pedal steel on um, I'll Be Your Baby Tonight. I really like that song, but I think it belongs on Nashville Skyline more than it belongs on John Wesley Harding, really. Supposedly, one of the one of the few that he wrote for this one where he actually wrote the music and the lyrics at the same time rather than just starting out with the lyrics and and it does feel like that i mean i i think it's lovely i I mean i can't imagine though as you say bob dylan thinking oh here's what i'm you know when you get a novel and and the you you get the teaser chapter in the back i mean he he's not doing it there's just no way but It's like having a previously um, you might you might remember me from songs <laughs> like this, but this is what I'm going towards. That's not <laughs> it's a lovely thought, but he's he's not doing that, I'm sure. And 
the other one it's, it's down on the cove down in the cove i mean it sort of reminds yeah. me of it's just like a chugging kind of jj kale kind of song really or a bit sort of a bit like uh dire straits when they're maybe not being too imaginative there's nothing wrong with either any of those acts but it just it doesn't fit on this record and it didn't didn't really inspire me very much um, as, a, as a song that one but yeah you're right neither of them seem to fit do they neither of them seem to fit the kind of even the the, the, the story that, that's kind of underpinning all of these they just they just seem kind of almost bolted on a little bit sorry I'm, I'm still just reeling from that put down dire straits when we're not being too imaginative <laughs> <laughs> No, I agree. I, I, I have no idea, really. You, you um, could start, what, wars what have been started over less than that, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I agree. They're, they're, they're perfectly functionable, lovely songs. And if I was shuffling a playlist and, and either of them popped up, I'd be delighted. But yeah, they, 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 I, don't, I don't get, I must confess, I just simply don't get what they're doing at the end of this album. Well, I think we're, we're pretty close to wrapping up, aren't we, Rich? Was there any other song that you wanted to pick up before we do get into the final throws of this? No, I think we've probably covered... I mean, I'm, I'm just going to... Unless you wanted to get into Frankie Lee and Judas Priest, I'm going to steer clear of that because I really like listening to it. But it's just kind of... It feels like an old sort of campfire story that, that someone just starts telling and then it kind of goes nowhere but it sort of goes somewhere but by the end of it you're thinking well I've, I'm aware that I've, I've listened to a story <laughs> but I, I don't really know uh, what, what it meant at all so so unless yeah I really like it but I've, I've got no clue so I, I surrender on that one so yeah if you've uh, if you've got anything to add on that one go ahead Thank you, by the way, to the, the people on Twitter who, uh, who kind of mentioned their, uh, their favourites. We had Frankie Lee and Judas Priest was, I think I mentioned already, Garrett Baker's favourite. And uh, Jerry Close was a big fan of Wicked Messenger. We obviously haven't got time to talk about all of these, uh, these tracks. But um, yeah, there were a few people that mentioned Frankie Lee. And, and I salute you for that. All of those people that have, that have managed to elicit some kind of meaning from it. Mark, what's your... In the, <laughs> After, after that kind of completely no, non little I mean, ramble, have you got anything to <laughs> No, um, as I said at the outset, it was the song that I, I really tried to wrestle with to extract meaning from decades ago. And it's still very pleasant to do so now, but the difference being that I have no expectation that I'll ever get anywhere near the meaning. I suppose the thing is that it, it's, it's, it's almost a sibling to, in my mind anyway, to uh, Lily, Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts in the sense that it's got the, it's this shaggy dog story. I suppose Lily is more, it's, it's a happier song. Although it has a murder and a suicide in it. A murder and an execution in it. Still, well, you can, you still, can't win still them all. A happier you can't win them all. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I know we're jumping way ahead and we'll, we'll get to this album in, in, in good time, but that's another great example of a, of a dark story wrapped up in a in an upbeat and very positive melody, isn't it? But uh, yeah, sorry, I, I busted in there. No, no, absolutely. But I, I just think it's it's interesting that that one uh, on Blood on the Tracks is very divisive. Um, I think this song fits better in the structure of John Wesley Harding than that one does in Blood on the Tracks. But nevertheless, to me, yeah, completely baffling. I agree. Okay, normally at this at this point we kind of jump into last thoughts on whichever album. So. Um, I mean, we've kind of dealt really with the with the highlights and the lowlights of this uh, this this album. Many highlights, very few lowlights, really. So, I mean, last thoughts on on John Wesley Harding. I mean, if I if I kick this one off by saying, I mean, I you don't have to go many years down the line following the release of this to really see. I think it's influence. I mean, I really love American Beauty by the Grateful Dead, and I mean, you could actually class working man's dead in a very similar vein i think both of them are strongly strongly influenced by this record it's the kind of stripped down approach and the kind of rejection of of the psychedelic really and of course bob dylan is as he does so often got there significantly earlier than than many of those other bands yeah the other thing that i would mention about this in, in terms of a last thought is that thea gilmore of course did and, and thank you to um it was chris seagrave this time on twitter who uh, who kind of recommended this 
I'd never heard the Thea Gilmore kind of like-for-like recording of this, but it works very, very well. I mean, it's like a it, it breathes kind of a different kind of life into into many of the songs on this. Um, and it just shows really how versatile these songs are, how they work in kind of different contexts and different styles as well. But um, I can't remember where I was going with that now. So I'm going to hand back over to you for a few more final thoughts, if you've got any more. Yeah, I, I, I think, as I said before, it's probably, for me, his most complicated album, one of his richest. But I think what it definitely does have is this really central place in what's now Dylan's um, mythology, I suppose. Because to have done what he'd done, to have arrived as this star of um, protest and and the folk revival, and then to have reinvented himself in the way that he did to become this uh, this first rock star. But then to have come back again, he, he wasn't he wasn't just putting it on. This is who he is. This is what he's going to do. He's going to keep doing this. And we've talked about that a little bit already, and we'll talk about it at length in future episodes. But I think this is the album where we really see, actually, yes, he's plowing his own furrow. He's not bound by, you know, the dictates of fashion. He's, he's going in a, in a completely different direction, and you're never going to be sure where he's going to go next as we see even on the next album. So I think this is the one that really nails that down, as well as having this kind of really, in a way, deeply personal, emotional heart to it, which, again, I think is something we didn't see before, but we'll see again on on some of the 70s albums. So I think it's it's an important album in that sense. But I did also think that at the same time as he's doing that, we're also seeing a very conscious retreat away from this position he had occupied at the absolute fulcrum of the culture. Although he's always going to be there as this undeniably influential figure, as you've already explained, he's no longer right at the heart of things as he had been in that period of 65 to 66 and for a couple of years earlier. And of course, he, he couldn't have been, you know, he, he, couldn't, he, couldn't, he literally couldn't have survived, I don't think, if he had continued to be in that position for, for very much longer. But even though he would still have commercial success, um, we've got Tour 74 coming up. He's just had a number one album in the 21st century. Even though he'd had that, and even though he'd have the critical acclaim that he would so many points in future decades. I think this is the moment where he retires from that position as the vocal point for his generation. An arguable point, but I think that's 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 what I would take away from this album this time. Yeah, I agree. And I think I know that we do try and make these links between sort of cultural importance of, of both Shakespeare and, and Bob Dylan. But I think this one underlines this, just this willingness, as both of these artists have, to change and more than anything to just defy expectations and that's totally what Bob Dylan is doing here and will as you say continue to do but I think yeah I mean it's a remarkably good album it's a hell of a listen and I think it's very very interesting as you say how he's I mean he shifts entirely from from Blonde on Blonde and then he's going to shift again in Nashville Skyline which of course we'll be talking about next time well thank you very much indeed for joining us this time Next episode, we are going to be talking about Nashville Skyline. We hope that you will join us. Please do ask us any questions and post any questions on Twitter. You can search for us at Dylan American. Thank you.